You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Good morning, Discovering Discos. This week, we discover the tragic story behind everyone's favorite iconic fiery red chili garlic hot sauce, sriracha. We are giving you our raw and honest thoughts on the hit show, Farmer Wants a Wife. And we're revealing the very explicit response Mr. Joe Rogan had to farmers overseas. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. We're your hosts, Natalie and Tara, millennial cattle rancher and dairy farmer. And every Thursday, we go beyond the headlines to discover what's new in the world of food. And I'm coming to you live today from San Francisco. Another case of where is Tara Vanderdusen? That is going to be the case this week because I am leaving San Francisco tomorrow to head down to Fresno to pick you up at the airport. And then we are headed down to the World Ag Expo. We're going to have a little Valentine's Day date at the Case IH booth at World Ag Expo. I know. Case is the perfect partner for Valentine's Day because, let's be honest, their color just smacks. I'm sure that's why they picked it. I bet. Like, I bet the marketing team was like, Valentine's Day is our day and it's at World Ag Expo. And we're going to bring Tara and Natalie down and they are trying to dress the part. And they are going to be Case IH Red. And it's finally coming to fruition. Can I tell you the most annoying thing that's happened to my life right now? Oh, yes. It's your fault, too. Oh, of course it is. (laughs) So I don't know what I did to my phone, but it reset like all of my settings. Like, you know how it automatically fills like your name and address and email? Except for it kept yours. So every time I go to buy something online or do something online or fill out a form, it's literally like, Natalie. And then it gives your address and like phone number and email. Like I have to go in on my phone and be like, I'm not Natalie. Can you please stop? And I don't know how to fix it. (laughs) This is my favorite thing. I hope I accidentally get surprise boxes in the mail from you because I have, I think it's a couple different shopping accounts that kept my old Montana address. And I have just clicked through so quickly and checked out. I think a handful of times now I have sent like free people and a couple other brands that are saved to this old address. And I'm sure they're so annoyed. They're like, why is Natalie still sending her clothing? I don't want her clothing. Like, Or maybe they're thrilled. Like if they're your size, they're probably like free people. Like great style. Like if a box showed up for me and it fit me, like, I mean, I'm like six inches shorter than you, but like in theory, I would love that for me. You're like, God, is that you? Like looking up, (laughs) did you send this to me? (laughs) This is exactly what I needed in my wardrobe. How did you know? <laughs> oh. Did you do anything with uh, Daniel over Valentine's Day for the weekend since uh, you guys won't be together during the week? No, because I'm with my sister. So Daniel oh, yeah, that's right. Chop liver. I have done nothing with Daniel and I feel really bad, but I saw your stories. You, I was actually like, that's such a good idea. I should have done something with Daniel ahead of time, but I'm actually putting the blame on him. He should have asked me to probably do something ahead of time, but you went to a concert and it looked really fun. Yeah, it was Shane Smith and the Saints and it was so good. If you guys ever get a chance to listen to him, you should. But funny story. I'm like, this is concert going at age 40. Luke, (laughs) we were in between like the, the opening band got done and we were waiting for, you know, Shane Smith to come on. Luke missed that memo. He was like, it was like 930. He looks over at me and we were with another couple and, and he's like, this was perfect. I have like a third of my beer left so we can just finish this and then go whenever. And we, we all kind of like looked at him a little confused and then it like clicked. And I was like, he thinks the concert's over. He thinks the opening act was the concert and he's ready to go. And I had to break it to him and be like, dear, there's like still the main bands coming on. He's like, it's almost 10 o'clock. The, the main band hasn't even started yet and it's 10 o'clock he's like Natalie we're gonna get home at midnight like what are you doing that's hysterical there needs to be like a concert ticket option that's like over 35 mm-hmm. like 
we'd like the concert to actually start at five uh-huh. yeah, and then like six thirty seven ish the the main main stage takes place and then like we're wrapping this up by nine maybe even like stagger the leave time so that there's not crazy like parking lot like there needs to be that option we actually parked at the end of the parking lot on purpose so we could leave without <laughs> having to go through traffic that's because Luke and Dan are the same person. Dan is always like, okay, how can we leave faster than everyone else? Because I don't actually want to be here. Mm-hmm. It was great. Well, happy uh, one day belated Valentine's to all of the discos. We hope you guys had a great week of love. I know. So when this airs, we will be coming to you actually like post World Ag Expo and we'll have lots to share next week on the podcast. But for now, we will thank our sponsor, Case IH. Case IH has solutions for every challenge, equipment for every farm. Case IH is built by farmers. And at the end of this episode, we will have a great interview with a Case IH specialist, Terry, who will be talking all about the specialty industry. So stick around for that. All right, you guys, diving into the first article to discover this week headline What really caused the sriracha shortage? question mark two friends and the epic breakup that left millions without their favorite hot sauce so this was a little expose article out of fortune and it gave almost it was giving how i built this vibes for me a little bit it went over how two men one was a vietnamese refugee and the other was a california farmer came together to create the iconic american sriracha brand only to basically have it fall apart after decades of partnership um And it was a longer article, but I enjoyed reading it. I really had no idea about any of the backstory to Sriracha. Yeah, like you said, it was in Fortune. So it was definitely like a business breakdown. So it was a longer article. If you're into that kind of thing, I recommend it. Like it gave lots of numbers and like definitely like the contract side of things, how they could have built this business different, like to set themselves up for success. So just like side note, if that's what you're into, check out this article. But I actually saw this story on social media and it's been kind of like running in the background for a while. Like when you pull up Sriracha Shortage, which is a lot of S's and really hard to say. Um, There's a number of different articles like New York Times has covered this. Like it's kind of been all over the place about this entire breakdown of like the iconic brand. So if you're living under a spice rock, I guess, Sriracha is that I'm sure you've seen it. It's the it's a very recognizable bottle. It has like the white rooster emblem on it, a bright green nozzle. It's like a red sauce. Um, Fun fact, we're actually saying it wrong. It is called Sriracha. I learned that. Uh, It was named after the coastal Thai town of Sriracha. And the rooster was actually chosen because one of the founders, which we'll introduce them next, the his um, date of birth was 1945. And that is the year of the rooster. And so that's why he chose that emblem to go on the bottle. I know. Fun fact, this year is actually the year of the dragon, which is the year I was born. So it is my year in the Chinese year. Okay. I, watch out, everyone. I guess this is the year of Tara. I want to dragon suits me. Like, I feel like I'm like ready to roll. What is my year? Let's see. I don't know. It's probably something. You're probably the chicken. <laughs> I don't even know how to interpret that. I am the rabbit. I am the year of the rabbit. 1987. I don't know what that means. Stop laughing at me. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just like, you're a rabbit and I'm a dragon. Like, I just feel bad for you. Okay, well, we're going to look into the meaning of the years. And we're going to circle back around to who you actually want to be. So getting to the the brainchilds of this, the original founder was David Tran. Uh, he started this recipe and sold it in L.A. in the 80s. Then he ended up partnering up with Craig Underwood, who is the farmer, and he eventually became the sole supplier of the juicy red jalapenos needed to make the sauce. Those two, like it was them for almost 30 years, and it worked really, really well until basically it sounds like it it did not work any longer. 
It just seems crazy to me that it worked so well for 30 years. Like these two men made millions of dollars. Like the farm kept expanding. It To me, it seemed like such a great like symbiotic relationship that this farmer produced it. it they, the factory was in LA. One of the key things about this is they need fresh red jalapenos. So normally you think of jalapenos as green, but any like chili pepper, and this is like my New Mexico history coming out, will go to red. So like green chilies will ultimately go to red chilies if they keep going and they get sweeter and a little bit less hot. So red sauce is typically less hot than green sauce. Um, But they're very delicate. Like they're like a softer fruit whenever they turn red. And so the farm is located right outside of LA. And it just like, they really were successful. And then in absolutely one afternoon, the entire thing fell apart. Yeah, it's crazy. They talked about how they would often to like um, create the next year's plans and everything was on like handshake agreements. Like there wasn't a lot of contracts. And then, like you said, they met in 2016 prepping for 2017 season And one of them went on vacation and he found out on vacation like days later after having this like meeting for planning and prepping that everything was over. Um, And it's funny because as I would suspect, it came down to money and it was basically like who's who's like they both felt the other one was like out to get them doing them wrong. And it just kind of went through this story of how, you know, Tran thought Underwood was out to get him and Underwood thought Tran was out to get him. I know. I can't believe, though, in the years and the backlash that has followed, they haven't come to an agreement because it has now cost them millions of dollars. Like the factory cannot keep a steady supply of like a good product. The farm has had to like reevaluate their entire business model and diversify. And like in that time, a ton of other brands have come in with like generic you know, whatever, generic forms of the sriracha. Fun fact, you said it's about a town, so he could not trademark the word sriracha because it was a town and you can't do that in the United States. And so, like, you know, Tabasco is like, hey, like, we'll fill the void, no problem. Although no one's quite got the recipe, it seems like, as well as he had it, like, down, which is probably about quality and all of these things that they had so well done. And I just can't believe they haven't been able to come back together and figure it out. I know the article asked them if they'd ever worked together and both of them are like, no, which it's funny. I imagine them like businessmen in their 50s. They are 81 and 78. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I was imagining like grumpy old men, the movie where they're like fighting and can't get along. That's what was going through my mind when I realized their age. But yeah. So meanwhile, while they're having their issues and problems and losing millions of dollars, and and like you said, they had the perfect puzzle pieces to go together. And now they're trying to find puzzle pieces to fit with them that that don't. And they're having problems with that. All of us sriracha, sriracha, I keep saying sriracha, but all of us sriracha lovers are, you know, also getting the brunt of it because... Uh, that is where the shortage came from. So if you guys remember, there's been a couple different peaks of shortage in the sriracha. And it was because of this trouble sourcing the peppers. Like Tara said, they had to be very specific ones. And Tran was having trouble doing that. So that is where we were seeing the empty shelves. That is where we were seeing like really expensive bottles hit the market. Um, And like you said, that's where we saw other companies step up to fill the void too. Uh, You mentioned Tabasco. I thought it was hilarious. They actually created a website during this time called SrirachaShortage.com. And when you clicked on it, it said looking for something and then the the Sriracha bottle popped up. And so they were totally capitalizing off like uh, Sriracha, this company created their competitors, which I think is absolutely crazy. It really is. And what is even crazier to me is the motto behind the company, the Sriracha Sauce, is make product, not profit. And then the entire thing collapsed over profit. Oops. I have to ask you, do you have it in your fridge? I do. And I didn't even know it was in there. But I opened the fridge up the other day and I was like, oh, my gosh, we have Sriracha. There's actually a Sriracha cookbook that I want to get now um, and try and make some stuff out of it. 
40 states prefer sriracha over ketchup, according to like some kind of national survey. I don't know who does these surveys, but I thought that was fascinating. Um, it is a billion dollar company. So we're not talking about like small peppers here. <laughs> this is a lot of money that people are losing out on. And it's actually the number three hot sauce brand in America. And it has made it all the way to the International Space Station. So it's even like considered like essential. It's an essential condiment. And the craziest thing is they've done all of that while remaining a private company. So they never sold, um, not even the smallest share. Um, They were offered it multiple times, but they remained ownership. And they said they've never put very much money into marketing either, which I think is absolutely crazy. It goes to the power of word of mouth and like that virality effect you can have on people if you just get your product right. Well, talking about getting product right, uh, they actually mentioned that the spice level is apparently just right for the average like American person's spice tolerance. And I wonder if it's because of that like red chili, like leaning towards the red chili versus the green chili. Like it adds spiciness without like overpowering the flavor of a dish. And supposedly that is like the secret sauce about it. Yeah, I feel like I should try it. Like after reading this article, I was like, hmm, I think I should try it. I feel like I'm missing out on something. I always assumed it was super hot, though. So I don't really eat it either. I mean, I eat it in things, but I don't have a bottle of it in my fridge to like add. And I kind of was thinking the same thing. I was like, how do I not have this when we're like a pretty big like spice family? But I feel like we just put green chili on everything. So I don't I feel like it'd be like the condiment that gets like left in the back of the fridge. And like seven years later, you pull it out and you're like, this went bad in 2023. And it is now 2030. You know, like I just envision that for the sriracha in my fridge. New Mexico green chilies would be like, you are cheating on us right now if you put that bottle in your fridge. One of my brother-in-laws, though, he is absolutely obsessed with him. He has loved sriracha forever. In fact, one year for Christmas, I kind of forgot I did this. And then I remembered reading the article. But he is a biker, like road biker. Like he loves to bike and enter races. And you know how they wear like those tight shirts and shorts when they're biking? I ordered yeah. him a sriracha shirt. Oh, that's hysterical. One year for Christmas. The article had a photo of a guy dressed as a sriracha bottle for Coachella. And uh-huh. I was like, that is the epitome of like 2015 to me. Like someone dressed up as sriracha at Coachella. Just that that's what we'll look back and remember in the history books. There's one quote I want to read that I feel like sums up my final thoughts on it. It said, one man with thousands of acres of pepper fields, but nobody to buy his pepper. Another man with a massive pepper factory and not enough peppers to keep it running. Meanwhile, an adoring fan base pines for the product the men made together, even as the two remain estranged. Victims, perhaps, of their own runaway success. On that note, the last thing I'll say is there is a Sriracha video, actually. It was funded through Kickstarter. And I was reading in one of the articles that it said it kind of alluded to that, that they felt like the owners were maybe flying a little too close to the sun, like they got the Icarus syndrome. Uh, So I don't know. If you're interested in the story, I think the movie is something you could check out too, along with this article. All right. Listen, right now we are all looking for help to get us through the cold and flu season. Is anyone else sick and tired of being sick and tired and just overall not feeling good and looking our best? Well, how about a product that helps boost our immune system plus improves hair and skin radiance? Armra is a proprietary concentration of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuilds the barriers of your body and fuels cellular health for a host of research-backed health benefits. 
including strengthening your immunity, igniting metabolism and anti-inflammation, fortifying gut health, activating hair growth and skin radiance, powering fitness performance and recovery, and conferring powerful anti-aging benefits. Natalie and I have been using and loving Armra for several months now. We have our entire families hooked on it too. Both Natalie and I prefer the non-flavored. If you've seen my videos, I take it straight every morning or I mix it in my girl's chocolate milk. But if we had to choose a flavor, we would go with the watermelon vine. Natalie loves it. If you want to try Armra for yourself, go to tryarmra.com forward slash discover or enter discover to get 15% off your first order. You can click the link in our show notes and enter code discover to save yourself some money. All right, you guys, diving into the second article to discover this week, headline, Farmer Wants a Wife, New Crop in Search of Love as Hit Reality Show Returns. So as the title explains, we're going to be talking about Farmer Wants a Wife, which is a reality TV show. I would say think Bachelor meets the country. The stars of it are, you know, cowboys, farmers, etc. This is a new show in the U.S. It's in season two that just aired this month, a couple weeks ago. But apparently, as I am learning through my community, It is worldwide first. Uh, Apparently, the Australian version is amazing. Um, We thought, though, it would be fun given the month of love and that Valentine's was yesterday that we thought we would cover this um, show. Tara was a little adamant that she thinks this is going to be cheesy and dub and wants no part of Farmer Wants a Wife. And I was afraid of that, too, which we can dive into a second because I think there are just concerns we have in ag about how agriculture farming is portrayed. But I have to say, I watched episode one and two of season two, and I absolutely loved it. I was pleasantly surprised. Okay, wait, tell me again, which ones did you watch? Season Season two. I have not watched season one at all, which I have heard. We can get into it. I've heard season one is not good. Bad reviews. Um, I think I'm hoping Fox heard the feedback from everyone about season one. I think there's a lot of issues and brought it in to change season two because I really like season two. Okay, so I have something to confess to everyone. I feel like I like barely had time to prep the other articles because I ended up binge watching the entire, almost the entire season one last night with my sister and brother-in-law. And it was hysterical because they had already watched it. And I was like, guys, we really don't have to like keep watching this. Like I only needed to watch like one or two to be able to like talk about it on the podcast. And they were like, no, it's hysterical watching it, like getting your guys' feedback because they already obviously know what's going to happen. And so we started with season one. As you said, I was hesitant. I'm still hesitant. Like, I'm curious now, knowing what you said about season two, to go back or go start on season two when I finish season one and see what changes there are. I think ag is just hard for me to watch play out on screen because even if they try not to do like stereotypes, it's just like so stereotyped, right? Like, it just like (laughs) kills me a little bit. And I think though, probably there's probably a farmer out there who's like, season one was representative of like what their farm is like. I I don't know. I think farming is so individualized. It's hard to watch it play out on a TV screen. For sure. So I'm going to watch season two. Tara is going to catch up on season one. We'll uh, maybe report back to you guys on the Discover channel or individual channels. But the men of this season, I absolutely, I thought they were really good picks. They seem like very genuine men. They are very different picks than season one. That's one of my notes that I made, like, because I went through like I'm obviously watching season one, but I Googled all of season two's guys. I feel like they intentionally picked different types of quote unquote farmers. Oh, I am so interested in season one now. So season two, there's a 42 year old single dad and he is out of Missouri. He made the funniest comment and (laughs) we're like, this is God's country. Or he said, this is God's country, the armpit of God, but still we're in God's country. (laughs) 
<laughs> so sorry to our Missouri discos. Yeah, that's terrible. But he is um, a team roper. And so he has a little small 50 acre farm with horses and roping cattle. There's Mitchell, who's a first generation farmer out of Tennessee, which I want to touch on the locations in a minute. Um, I he, do he doesn't really farm at all. Uh, at least it hasn't established yet. I mean, there's only two episodes for season two, but I think he just has the aspirations like lives in the country is planning on like starting farming. Brandon is out of Colorado. He is quickly becoming my favorite. Again, only two episodes in, but he is so genuine. He is a second generation potato and barley farmer out of Colorado. And then Nathan, get this, he's 23, 20 freaking three. He's so young. He's like a little baby. Um, but he is a citrus and cattle farmer out of Florida, fourth generation. So I do think with season one, they picked more like conventional-ish type farmers. And this time I feel like they were like, let's cast the net a little wider, like team rope or someone like aspirational farm. I'm curious to see like the differences and actually like on farm what it is, because I feel like season one was there, like was a little bit more like what you would think of maybe farming. The locations though are interesting because some of the girls like in season one, I'm like, you're like an hour outside of like a massive like Atlanta, you know, like, and then one of the farmers from season one, though, he was like in a tiny town in Oklahoma. And I'm like, there is a very big difference between living in a very tiny town in Oklahoma and living like not that far from a big city for people who are like for girls who are like thinking about like dating a farmer. Absolutely. It's the same thing this season. So the first generation farmer is 20 minutes outside of Nashville. And so I was like, those women oh that my are... Gosh, that is not how. I know. No, but <laughs> it still like kind of counts. I mean, there are going to be farmers and ranchers outside, like out of a metropolitan area yes. that are farmers and ranchers. So it counts. It's just different for the women. It I think. It's different. It's different. Because Colorado guy that I really like, he is in a one-stop light town. He said there's no restaurants in town. And when one of the girls heard that, she was like, what? There's no restaurants? Which gets me to my point that I really want to talk about because, well, there's actually two things I really want to talk about. One, I want to talk about the authenticity, but two, I find it so interesting that I do feel like this is set up better for success for relationships compared to like a quote unquote bachelor. Totally. Because I, I mean, I haven't watched Bachelor since college, so things could have changed, but they're like in a mansion. They're like in a controlled ecosystem, like not real life. These girls, one was getting ready in like the little half path, like powder bathroom of his like ranch house that is just a normal house like they are living the normal environment and i think that's absolutely crazy compared to like the other shows where they're going on these these, like fancy setup dates which i'll get to in a second but these dates were like very general like i thought good job for this show yeah so a few things about the show's setup is it like there's four farmers they are dating separate women i think they start with eight each and they pretty quickly like we're already i think i'm on episode four and i don't know we're like down to like three like they very quickly are like weeding people out there's not as much rules they get to kind of like pick and choose when they send someone home or if they want to keep someone like it's not quite like there's not like a rose ceremony really in the same way like and then they also pre-match like it is very clear Mm -hmm. that like the girls are choosing to be there they like match them based on personality but beforehand so that i liked better than the bachelor because this definitely took me straight back to college and like bachelor days and then as you said they actually are living in the farmer's houses which is fascinating like the farmers are all living it looks like an rvs like outside their house and the girls are living in the house and you can tell they're cooking for themselves they're cleaning for themselves like they are not in bachelor mansion just to say the least no i find it crazy one of them walked into the little first generation he has like this 
old cabin he lives in. I mean, it's a cute, like rustic cabin. But one of the girls was like, it looks like a place I'd be RBO. <laughs> I was like, well, honey, you're going to be living in it if you pick him. So you better like to be RBO. And he had a deer on the wall and he was so proud of it. He told every girl that walked through, he's like, that's my buck I killed. And one was like, oh my gosh, it's real, which I know it makes the girls sound like stereotype and cheesy. And I, and we could talk about this because even with our path with, you know, discover the TV show and meeting with production companies and having conversations, you cannot get away from some of that theme that people want. Like you, there's a storyline to a show. If you watch a good show, like there is the the plot, the problem, there's the hero, like there's all of the antithesis, like there's all of those things. Like, so to think that they're going to put this, you know, farmer wants a wife on and not have like one scene that is a little bit cheesy to play into or the one girl, like I already know which girl is going to be the girl get pits- picked on this in season two for being like, city slicker you know quote unquote i'm like they just they can't they can't get away with it even if it annoys the girls even if it annoys the farmer even if it annoys the production company like that is just how things are done that's how they're going to do it yeah it's a trope and it sells like it sells well so i actually interviewed to do a, a tv show gosh this was like right after daniel and i first got married so years ago and it was like a swap thing and it was basically like we swap places with someone who lives in the city and they come to the dairy and like work and we go like work their jobs in the city and the producer was like i think you're just a little too familiar with a nordstrom yeah and I, <laughs> and I felt bad like i was like i'm sorry i know the trope that you're looking for but like that's not gonna be me like we had just got back from honeymoon and they were like where'd you go on your honeymoon and I was like oh my gosh we went to Tokyo and we were on the subway and they were like this is not working we want to like dump off a farmer that's never been on a subway never traveled never been overseas or you know and I, I was like I totally get it like we're just we're not gonna be mm-hmm. people for you and so I think that's what I struggle with is because I am like like I get why they're doing it I get that is like that can be someone's like story too. It's just not every farmer's story. Just like it's not every city's person's story to be like shocked by, you know, a deer head on the wall. So, and I think that's why like I'm enjoying season two right now because they went on their first dates and I thought they did a really good job of trying to fill that need of like, quote unquote, you know, hitting like a country lifestyle, but not being cheesy to me. Like one, they went out on a fishing boat and she like, you know, like the waters were kind of rough. She was like a little uncomfortable, but it wasn't like over the top. One, they built a garden together and, you know, like one of the girls like got her tool stuck, which based off the girl, I actually do literally think she probably got her tool stuck. Like she was not, not her vibe. But I was like, building a garden is like a good, normal, like activity that kind of alludes to a country lifestyle, but isn't over the top. One, they cleaned out the horse stables and like we're talking around the horses. I thought it was totally normal. And then the last one, the potato farmer, he actually had him like pick potatoes off of the the like bear belt, like the ones that were misshaped. And I thought, well, that's like another normal standard activity. Like I thought they did a really good job of finding those things that represented our lifestyle, but weren't like offensive or overplayed or like character characterish to me. Yeah, one of the hard things is keeping up with all the people. There's a lot of like you have four farmers and they all have eight girls. And like it is like, I don't know, this morning Guinevere was like, which one got kicked off when I went to bed? And I was like, Guinevere, I don't even know how to like describe which girl it was because there is so <laughs> which one? There's yeah, nine. I, yeah. I was like, I don't know the blonde one. I just I don't know the one with the weird white cowboy boots that we were kind of making fun of. And so that actually brings me to another point is what well, hold on. Before you go on to that, I do want to say something about that because I agree. I think four men is too many. I don't know why there's I don't even know why there's four. And I never would have thought about this, but I watched the J Lo documentary and she was talking about her, how her and Shakira were asked to perform at the Super Bowl together. And it was really offensive because that that to them that meant that one 
female artist that was um, wasn't enough. Uh huh, wasn't enough that they wouldn't be able to carry, you know, the attention of everyone that they needed. Two of them, and I never would have thought that. But I wonder if they think or thought that you know a farmer couldn't carry the attention of one show because I'm like it's so weird. There's four of them. It's way too many. I like having more than one, but four was too many. I would have experimented on season two. I is think, it with- three the magic number? Like the rules of science is threes. Rules of threes. Three is the magic number. Four is too many. So one funny moment, the Missouri farmer was like, there has never been five women on this farm at once before. <laughs> he was like so overwhelmed. It was so the funny. The quote coming out of this is hysterical. One of the ones he was like, well, I'll tell you, they ain't Micah and Sarah. And I was like, if you are Micah and Sarah <laughs> in that small town, you are like, seriously? Thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> and oh then another... But I have to get into the outfits because I feel like we've got to wrap this up. And I'm just like so curious. What would like the outfits in season one are absolutely insane. One at one point, a girl is wearing golden goose sneakers. Another girl is wearing high heeled white cowboy boots and they are like mucking out stalls like the outfits are insane. No, I would say it is much more played down this season. There was the one girl was wearing like boots with heels on them that went uh, horseback riding, like, you know, kind of like over the knee, like fashion boots. Um, And she made a comment. She's like, this is gonna be a little difficult in my heels. But I wouldn't say there was anything that stood out to me, except for there is a moment in episode two where there's one girl, Joy, which she um, she's the one that I'm like, they're going to turn into like the stereotypical study slicker. But she had on this like fur hat and like these glasses and this whole outfit. But at the same time, I thought in my head, like, I have a cute little fur hat that I wear on the ranch sometimes. So I was like, I don't know. You know, I mean, it sounds like nothing like season one for as far as fashion, because I didn't really make notes on anything that like stood out weird to me besides Joy's one outfit. The last thing I want to say, and I'm interested to get your take on this. I do have to applaud the women because, again, as you and I have learned, like filming our TV show, it is not the most natural thing to have a camera on you. Even if you're like comfortable in front of a camera and you like want the camera there, you still find yourself in moments like second guessing your your actions and like what you said and just your mannerisms. Like it is really hard to just get to the point where you act like yourself without a camera there. That is doing normal stuff. Like that was you and I doing nothing that really had to do with something as personal and like exposed as dating. And one of the girls, like when they were driving out to the farm, she was like, what's that funny airplane thing? And he's like, that's a pivot. That's what they used to water the fields, you know? And I was like, that's what's going to happen, though. If you take non-ag people and you put them in ag, like it just sets them up to say silly things, whether we want them to or not. Like you're just going to have it's such a different lifestyle. You're going to have questions. You're going to say things. And I was like, good for those girls. Like it's hard enough to have your date filmed. But then have your date filmed the first time on a horseback, you know? And I was like, those girls are so brave. Like, I had to applaud them so much for being like, sure, I'll sign up to be on a reality dating show and let me go into the middle of the country where I have no idea what I'm doing and be comfortable, like, ex- like putting myself in basically a situation that I'm probably going to sound like a dumbass. I kind of agree with you. Like, I hope Ag isn't, like, too hard on this show because mm-hmm. I feel like this is, like, representation. I mean, sure, it's a show, so they're playing up some things. But I do think it's kind of representation of, like, people not knowing what things in ag are, which, like, as they should. If right. you put me onto a potato farm, I guarantee I don't know what the machine is called that they harvest potatoes with, right? Like, none of us know all the ins and outs of agriculture, let alone a consumer living in a city. And so I'm just, like, I, like, while I was having fun watching it and making fun of it, like, I also was, like, 
people have questions about ag and they don't know. And these are their genuine reactions to things. And it's fascinating to be able to watch that. So I know I was like super against it and I still am not like on board with it, but I'll tolerate the I'll finish watching season one and I'll catch up to season two with you. Well, I am loving it, you guys. I paid for Hulu. I was going to do like the free seven day trial, drop it just to watch the two episodes so we could record this. And now I'm like ready for my Thursday watch parties. I think it's on Thursdays. And I'm like, we're going to be having like all sorts of conversations. I have followers that know some of the farmers. Like I'm getting all the details on my personal page. I even had one of the farmers follow me because I found him on social media. So we maybe we can get like an interview. Like I, you guys, I'm turning this from a molehill into a freaking mountain. Like I am, this is my thing. As we saw with Farmer Wants a Wife's, Western fashion is everywhere right now. And if you are wanting to join in with the perfect statement pieces that are authentic, unique, and handcrafted, you have to check out Vote. Vote Silversmith is the iconic silver brand of the American West. Since 1970, Vote Silversmith has been owned and managed by members of the Vote family. Vote creates every silver piece in their factories in Old Mexico with local craftsmen. The best part is that Vote Silversmith backs every silver piece with a promise, a lifetime guarantee. Should your genuine vote sterling silver product break, bend, twist, or sustain damage for any reason, they will fix it or replace it for free of charge. Natalie and I wear our vote jewelry, just wore it last night, so often. Whether it is simpler pieces for everyday wear or something bold for a date night out, we find that they add the perfect touch to almost all of our outfits. For style and cultural icons, vote is the clear choice. Go to votesilversmith.com or click the link in our show notes and use the code DISCOVER to save yourself some money on your next order. Again, that is code DISCOVER to save yourself some money. All right, you guys, diving into the last and final article to discover this week. Headline, how much crime do you have? Question mark. Joe Rogan slammed this major country for going after farmers, then mocked another for slaughtering cows in the name of climate change. So this was out of Yahoo News, and it talked about how the German farmers who have been continually making headlines for setting up tractor convoy blockades and just, you know, government protest decisions uh, caught the attention of Mr. Joe Rogan, and on a recent episode, he went into a very expletive-laden critique of the German government over the situation, and expletive it was. Um, he actually used a very nasty word. I had to cut it from our Discover Reel. I was like, "That, that's <laughs> that's not going to work. I draw the cut. line there. Yeah. <laughs> work but, um, girlies, but um, we... <laughs> not that one. <laughs> yeah. So the farmer protests in Europe are everywhere. And I'm sure it's also just like the algorithm feeding me like this information. But we have been covering this literally for years now on Discover Ag, what is going on in Europe and the EU. And like it is getting heightened. My brother and I were sending reels back and forth to each other um, just like over the weekend because it's crazy. Like it's exploding what they're doing. And it is becoming very... um Like the French farmers were always pretty aggressive, but it's becoming more and more aggressive like across the entire continent of Europe. Yeah. So I was going to say it's worth noting that this article and like what Joe Rogan was talking about was about Germany specifically, but it is everywhere. Like you said, uh, Spain just kind of joined in the rally for the first time over pesticide use. Uh, we've covered Netherlands before. A lot of theirs was around fertilizer. You had France, which was pesticides too. I mean, the hostility overseas is wild. And the last time we talked about this, you and I both said, which you kind of just alluded to, 
European farmers handle this a little bit differently than the U.S. farmers would, I think. Like, they are bad bees. They take no shit. Like, they spray it on you instead, literally. (laughs) Then, I don't know, seeing all of these, I started reading through all of the regulations being imposed on them. And honest to God, I think if that was happening in the United States, we'd be reacting the same. Like, I feel like um, there was a New York Times article about this, too. And, like, no surprise, the New York Times kind of, like, was shitting on the farmers. No pun intended there. Like, they kind of were like, oh, they're, like, throwing a fit. Mm -hmm. They are not throwing a fit. Like, they are being thrown a lot of stuff at them. Like, they are having huge taxes on fuels. They are having huge – they are required to cut emissions in massive ways. They are being asked to cull cattle. Like, they are essentially being put out of business across the country. And it's just crazy to me. This is one of the things, like, I kind of really agreed with Joe Rogan on. It is like, you are cutting out farmers. Like, how insane is that? Like, how are you going to feed your people? But then you're going to import foods. And it's just – it's – it's insane. There's no other word for it. So that brings up a point I want to talk about, because historically, when we've talked about this on the episode, we've talked about how like the focus on carbon offsets, like you and I know, we talk about all the time, like our hyper focus on carbon is getting us nowhere. Like, yes, it needs to be part of the conversation, but we're literally making an entire conversation and nothing good is coming out of that. And last time we talked about this, we talked about one of the things we love to talk about this, which is like, sure, okay, let's use Germany as an example. Germany can put in all of these regulations, decrease Germany's footprint. It's just going to be offset somewhere else, right? Like we've talked about that before because we're in a global marketplace. So if Germany decreases their carbon footprint and changes things there, someone else has to pick up the slack, which means emissions are going to increase somewhere else. Overall, no benefit, right? One thing that we have not talked about, and I thought this was highlighted in a couple different articles, and I thought it was so well, and it's exactly what you said, that like the farmers are pissed off because one of the things is that they were saying is they're upset about the trade deals that permit the import of the commodities from other countries that don't have the same environmental protections. And I was like, that makes sense. Like, I would be pissed off, too. It would make me so angry if my own government said, I am going to make these regulations and impose these on you and make it really, really challenging for you to succeed. And then I'm going to turn around and just import the same commodity from someone else doing the same thing. Like, I would be like, come freaking on. Like, I'm supposed to be the people you care about. Like, I'm in your country. Like, you're my government. And you're just like turning your back on me and taking the same thing from someone else. That is literally my biggest note from this. The protests are working because they are rolling back or they're putting into place some regulations that like this was in France that you cannot import products that do not meet the same regulations that you are putting on your own farmers. That's that's absolutely asinine that you would say farmers in France have to do all of these things in order to sell food here, but we can bring in food from South America, from Russia, from all of these different places to feed our people. And it's like going back to that carbon, like we've talked about this so many times, you are solving a local sustainability issue and creating a global sustainability crisis because now you are also hauling food all from all over the world in order to feed your people instead of being food sovereign, which we talk about so much, and being able to feed your own people. There was a video that one of my uncles sent me about Ireland. And this is something like I like so truly believe. Some places are so well set up for doing certain foods very, very well. It's actually um, a speech I saw at World Wildlife Fund, which is problematic, but I loved this speech about like places that do things good should do them really, really good. And for Ireland, they grow root vegetables well. We know that. Like they grow potatoes so well. And the farmer was like, I can no longer grow potatoes here because of the regulations put on me. So this isn't even just animal agriculture now. This is all ags, whether you are 
carnivore, um, vegan, like all spectrums are being affected. And he was like, I can't grow potatoes here. I should be growing potatoes for all of Europe because our soil is so well set up for it. Like everything about our climate is good for it. And now I can't do it because of the regulations put on me. Where are we going to grow potatoes? Someplace else that isn't as good at it or it like it's just crazy. Yeah. And I think about that a lot on the same note when it comes to like advancements. You know, how are we supposed to progress as an industry if we aren't set up to have the ones that are most fit, like in leading, able to lead and, you know, like experiment with progression? It brings up another topic too, kind of. I mean, they're they're also interwebbed. But you and I talk a lot about how like food does have a carbon footprint. And so I think that's why we get so not like I don't know the right emotion. It's probably a different emotion depending on the day, but we just get like frustrated that the conversation is always around carbon because it's like, yes, like we're not denying. And some of the articles said that too. Like the farmers aren't saying that like we don't have a footprint, you know, like this isn't a denying of like our contribution. But I thought one of the articles said it really well because like food does have a footprint. Like all food has a footprint, no matter what it is. Like, and it's going to be darn near impossible to make probably like food extraction not have a footprint, right? But like, if we want to make changes and we want to see a decrease in carbon emissions or whatever the footprint measure is, which we all do, whether we're farmers or not, it's going to come through support, not chokeholds. And I think that's one of my big issues, too, with what's going on overseas is like everything is is like geared around like making it harder for the farmer to seed instead of being like supportive in our efforts to improve the industry. Because at the end of the day, farmers want the industry improved, too. Yeah. In this article, one of the frustrating things for me is they kept noting global numbers. So they were like 30% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are from agriculture. Going to your point, like yeah, what what is an acceptable number in the big scheme of things for us to feed 9 billion people? And then second, it was like, okay, you're comparing global numbers. What are the actual EU farmers numbers? What is actually Germans number, Germany's numbers? Because I would guess that German farmers are below like the global average and are probably doing good things like talking about advancement, you know? And so I hate, I hate, hate, hate when articles use global numbers again when talking about a local issue, because if those farmers are doing better than average, like you're bringing the average down, you're improving the overall system. And I thought though, Again, going back to what the farmers are doing well, they did announce that the EU is scrapping an entire bill about reducing pesticide use because it has become a symbol of polarization. And I didn't love her quote there, the symbol of polarization, because it's like it's to me, food shouldn't be a polarizing conversation. Feeding your country with food made by your country's farmers shouldn't be a polarizing issue. But I was glad to see that they were rolling back the bill and maybe reevaluating. And there was conversations. um, There was a quote in there about bringing farmers to the table and actually engaging with them on how they can be a part of the solution. And like you said, instead of just like chokeholding them and forcing them to do something. Yeah, I do think for all of our farming friends overseas, I do think it's great to see some of the progress that their protests have made. I saw one of the sound bites around this, which I thought was a pretty strong quote. It said, a small minority can bring the country to a halt. Um, and that was a 23-year-old German fall- farmer who was involved in the protests. And, and you and I, from the beginning of this, have really, like, I guess maybe applauded or just... I I think the way that the farmers have rallied to, together to support farmers within the same country doing different things, like, they're not all farming the same, right? So, you know, you could have different industries that are maybe going to look out for their own industry, but not over there. Like, they are coming together whether they're in that country, outside of the country, I just feel like farmers are standing with farming really strongly. And I feel like it's from the beginning, it has been like a present front. Um, And I think that's like really cool to see. 
Yeah, I think this is there's a lot of visuals with this. So if you are not following the Discover Ag Instagram page, you definitely need to be because we're going to be sharing some of the visuals and some of the videos from the protest and different things on our uh, stories. So you want to check those out because I feel like a video says like a million words um, and it's just crazy. Like, you know, the extent these farmers are going to to have their voices heard, but really proud of them as a, you know, I always say this as, um, you know, a farmer from that's only a set, second generation here in the United States, uh, still have a lot of cousins and people f- in my family farming in the EU and know like the real struggles they're facing on the ground. Um, so I feel like, I don't know, as U.S. farmers, we stand with you because I feel like for us, we need to be seeing this as kind of like the writing of the on the wall of what could be coming down the pipeline for us in very near future. Absolutely. And because, you know, we are where food meets pop culture, I thought I'd end us on a little (laughs) fun, lighthearted pop culture note. I saw a headline that said, you got to fight for your right to farm. And then it said, Beastie Boys, maybe. (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) That is amazing. Okay, you guys, on that note, don't go anywhere because we are going to be getting into an interview with a Case IH specialist on specialty tractors. We actually recorded this live at World Ag Expo. It was a ton of fun. We learned a lot about what different tractors look like for some of those specialty, you know, crops, industries in agriculture. So this is not your conventional, you know, like corn livestock tractor that you think of with our everyday farming. This were some very unique pieces of tractors and it was a really fun conversation. All right. Welcome to our interview portion of the Case IH Morning Show. Thank you for joining us, Terry and Nick. Can you guys maybe kick it off and tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Case IH? My name is Terry Zanella. I am the marketing manager for our Farmall line of tractors. I am based at Case IH headquarters in Racine, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Nick Underhook. I'm the territory sales manager for Case IH. Uh, I do Central California, Northern California. Uh, west of Washington, west of Oregon, Nevada, Alaska, Hawaii. So kind of not a small yeah. territory. <laughs> no, <not at> all. <laughs> Very diverse as well, which is kind of what we're here to talk about is some of those, you know, the diversity in the Case IH lineup. Yeah, we have a lot of different crops, a lot of different producers. And yeah, it's a diverse uh, area. I've been with the company for a little over eight years. Uh, I was at Case IH, so happy to be here. Excellent. Um, Terry, you might want to feel this one because here at World Ag Expo, and we mentioned this earlier, you know, we have a lot of tractors around us. Specifically, we have, you know, one Farmall right here next to us. Um, do you maybe want to tell us a little bit more about some of these new Farmall tractors? Yeah. Uh, at the World Egg Expo, we are introducing three new Farmalls that are specifically designed for orchards, vineyards, and fruit and vegetable production. The first is our Farmall CL. This is a brand new line for Case IH. This tractor has a versatile transmission to give the producers the speed they need with a larger hydraulic system. We also have the Farmall Utility A. This is a new configuration for the Utility A lineup that has offers for narrow rows and lower clearance. And our last Farmall we're introducing is a new configuration for the Farmall 100A series. And this uh, has the flexibility for transplanters with its high hitch capacity. I'm really excited to see how people like react to the new tractors, see people gathering around the booth and just like 
I don't know, seeing what they think about and what the, what their reactions are, what they're planning on using them for, how they'll help their operations. So speaking of kind of the producers here, I mean, I know the World Ag Expo draws in a wide variety of farmers from across the country and even across the world. But Nick, you are local here. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges our producers are facing here in California. I know I feel like it's a constant state of extreme for California. Like you just got like flooded with rain, drought a few years ago. Like what are some of those challenges that producers are facing? I think you hit on some of them already which, uh, well, uh, water situation was a big one a few years ago, right? And then last year we had uh, plenty of water with no restrictions. And it looks like it might be the same way this year with with the rain and the snowpacking that we're getting uh, back in the mountains. Uh, Other challenges that we're facing, and I think this can be worldwide as well, are labor shortages. So uh, I think this actually gets aggravated here in California uh, due to minimum wages. So labor shortages, uh, a lot of times, it's not about uh, finding finding people to work, right? But it's finding the quality people and then being able to keep, keep it in-house and keep it in the industry. Uh, correlated to that, we can also talk about input costs, right? So uh, in, in the last few years, we've been seeing an increase uh, due to inflation and many other factors uh, influencing on the total input cost for yeah, for the producers, and once again, uh, labor it's it's one of it's one of the inputs, uh, and and we can bring back uh, interest rates as well, right? So that's with especially locally here in the California market. Uh, talk about commodity prices; uh, they've been dropping kind of drastically in this last year half a year, uh, especially in the orchard market. So we've been struggling with uh, prices on almonds, uh, walnuts, pistachios. Uh, so if you drive around and you, there's a lot of producers ripping the trees out and yeah, going to a different crop. Yeah, that's one thing I love about coming to these, uh, you know, events and conferences like this is you do get exposed to what other farmers are, cha- you know, they're challenges they're facing. And then obviously, when it comes to, you know, input costs and um, employment challenges, that's something that no matter where you are, I think that that's conversations you're having with your fellow producers. Um, With so many things that farmers are facing, you know, these challenges, what do you find they're actually looking for when it comes to equipment then? Well, uh, that's going to be probably four things I'm going to start with. Uh, One of of them, it's flexibility on the equipment, right? So they, they need equipment that it can be used in more than one operation. I would say affordability as well. Uh, and affordability doesn't mean a cheap piece of unit or a, yeah, a, a machine, right? It's all about the value. So uh, it doesn't mean it has to be with a lower price, but you need to get the value of what you're paying for, right? So by the end of the day, it's a return of investment. Uh, the other one would be reliability, right? You need a tractor that's reliable. Uh, by the end of the day, machine is supposed to be used, it's supposed to be in the field, so need to avoid the downtime because uh, that that's what we're paying for. It it should be it should be using it. And the last one would be productivity. So productivity can mean different things for different customers. Uh, maybe a customer is looking for uh, a lower f- fuel usage per hour, right? And the next customer, as an example, like on an orchard market can be thinking about uh, a shorter white turn when it comes to the end of the row. So once again, productivity means different things uh, for different customers, but uh, by the end of the day, that's what they're looking for in purchasing equipment. And here at KSIH, we take, we take that 
in consideration. And that's what we're looking for when we offer equipment to our customers and we're developing uh, new machines. Yeah, I feel like that is one thing with Case IH is you're going to have so many different farmers looking for so many different things. But when you guys go into making a new piece of equipment, if there's one thing I've learned from you guys, it's like you are very, have like very specific intentions of what you're creating, why you're creating, like it's very purposeful of what challenges you are addressing. And so Terry... Well, I'm actually curious for everyone tuning in because you guys are, you know, producers yourself. I would be so curious if you guys could drop in the comments what it is that you guys are looking for for tractors. I think that probably Case IH2 would like want to hear from you guys and what the specific things you are. You know, we mentioned a few, but I would lo- I'd love to know what's most important to you guys wherever you're farming at and ranching at. Yeah. And as you guys are doing that, getting in- involved in the comment section, Terry, can you explain a little bit about the Farmall CL and what challenges were you specifically addressing when Case IH created that product? Each of the new farm walls we're introducing has different features for different producers. When we talk about the CL, this tractor is customizable to meet the needs of any producer. With its wider rear axle, it can drive over tree nuts without damaging the crop. This is huge for tree nut producers. It also has a versatile transmissions and an upgradable hydraulic system. So the producer can tailor the tractor to their specific power and speed needs. That's amazing. Um, let's move into the next series, the um, Utility A. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? So the Utility A, it's kind of a unique uh, product line. Uh, we offer a 95A, a 105A, and a 115A. And it, it's it's a really versatile tractor, right? So uh, as we call it, it's a utility. So you can throw a loader and you can use it on uh, on a farm, uh, maybe on a dairy, or you, or you can take it to an orchard market. So when we took a look on the offerings that we have, uh, we have a special package, which uh, it's, it was developed for this specific market uh, to be able to provide a more robust tractor. Because, uh, I mean, we, we know that trees, they can be really abrasive to the tractor and, and to the operator. So that, that's the offer that we have here. Uh, on top of that, this is a tractor with a higher uh, flow pump which depending on the operation that we're using it, that's what we require. Uh, a, good, a good example of this is uh, the, uh, the almonds harvesters, right? They require a higher flow pump and this tractor has that offering. Yeah, we're actually right now on our dairy, we have the Farmall 115A that we're trying out. And what's so great about it is actually my husband was, I was just talking with him last night. Like it's traditionally our push-up tractor, but we have so many different implements for it. So he was putting the loader bucket on it just yesterday to be able to do a different task. And then he was shredding weeds with it the day before. Like it is an extremely versatile tractor for us. And I think also it's worth noting, we noticed this at the beginning, but Farmall celebrating its 100 years last year. So like it is just a tractor that like has really brought farms through the decades. Uh, so the last tractor that we want to talk about is with you, Terry, and that's the Farmall 100A. Uh, what, what are the solutions that this tractor brings to producers? We spoke about cost being a challenge for producers. The 100A is a low-cost alternative to larger, heavier machinery. This tractor has a high hitch capacity for transplanters. It's been specifically designed for the transplanter with the high hitch capacity and the optimal clearance. So, you know, covering, thinking about these three different farmalls, and, you know, you just mentioned the 100 years of farmall, one thing that has obviously um, changed majorly with them is the technology. So maybe we want to dive a little bit into the different technology with um, these tractors and the capabilities that they have. 
Well, technology has been offered uh, across many product lines already, uh, especially on the higher horsepower, right? But I think on the last few years, we've been seeing a trend where producers are looking are looking for this technology on the lower horsepower as well. So we offer today an entry-level telematic kit that it can be plugged on farmers or even on other equipment, just like, a, let's say, ski loader, okay? This entry-basic telematic can give you some information, just like uh, geofencing or maybe location, uh, even even basic uh, CAN information as well, which would be like an example of fuel usage. So producers, they're looking for this information. They want to know, they want to have the peace of mind of where the unit's located at, uh, if it's living the farm, and even being able to make smarter decisions when it comes to basic tractor information, like fuel usage. Yeah, there is um, so much that we can do with the technology to help us make those like management decisions every single day. As you said, like where where's equipment going? Where is it being sent? What's it been doing? Like how much fuel? Just being able to analyze every piece of our operation and what's going on so that we can be like as efficient as possible. Uh, Terry, for people who want to learn more about these farm on tractors, what should they do? Maybe we can direct them. Yeah, customers should see their local Case IH dealer or they can find more information online at caseih.com. And we will have that link somewhere for you guys tuning in on the YouTube. So um, if that is you, if you're interested in learning more of these new farmalls that we just covered, I would find those links and click them. And also feel free to leave any questions you have in the comments as well. We're going to be going through those and being able to bring them back to Terry and Nick and get some answers for you guys. So drop questions in the comments as well. Uh, with that, thank you both so much for joining our Case IH Morning Show. We are so excited to have you on talking about specialty tractors. Uh, I know we're so excited for the rest of the day here at World Ag Expo, so we'll let you guys get to it. Well, as always, I feel like our interviews with Case IH, I leave gleaning so much information. You know, I talked about in that interview how, you know, when you're on your farm and ranch, it's easy to get kind of in your own production bubble. And so it is nice to just hear you know, about these different tractors. We're not going to be using any of the tractors that, you know, run over the nuts or have any of the tree capabilities <laughs> not in Nebraska. Not planning almonds anytime soon. But it is fun to just be exposed to all the different faucets of agriculture. And it makes me excited for, you know, what's to come for the, the rest of the show today, um, tomorrow and Thursday. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel 58ember.com or find us at 58embermedia on socials.